You didn't expect that it would still be this hard, did you? For those of you who are older, or for those into whose lives God has brought a great deal of difficulty, at a certain point we expect trials to be done. We expect opposition to cease. We expect rest from all of our troubles. But in Psalm 71, we see for some of us, perhaps many of us, old age is not necessarily the golden time of enjoying our paid-off homes and saved-up for trips. Instead, the approach of old age brings continuing, even increasing trials. What is old age? In the psalm, it is connected with a set of circumstances, especially things like weakness. Verse 9, where he says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. So some of you probably feel like old age is a long ways off. You're still children, or you're still young adults, or you're still middle-aged. So old age seems a long way off. And yet, those same kinds of circumstances of weakness, of difficulty, of needing God's help can occur even much earlier in our lives. Consider that for Jesus himself, he was in his early 30s when he went through his great trial, including the crucifixion, on our behalf. And so, despite the weakness of old age and the discouragement of new trials, even when you've served God for perhaps a long time, the psalmist in Psalm 71 still calls us to praise God who delivers his aging follower and shames his enemies. And so let's begin by looking to the past in the first few verses here for reasons to praise God. And I would also point out to you, if some of this psalm sounds familiar, it contains excerpts from other psalms earlier in the book that we've come across as we've studied through on Wednesday nights, both recently and then a few years ago when we started going through psalms. The first thing I think we need to see from this psalm is that we should praise God because he's been your refuge in the past. We see this in the first few verses here, Psalm 71, 1 through 6. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man, for you are my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. The first thing we see in these first few verses is that we should cry for God's help against enemies. We see that God is our refuge in verse 1. In you I have taken refuge. Verse 3, be to me a rock of habitation. You are my rock and my fortress. Verse 4, rescue you, my God. And verse 5, you are my confidence. So God is our refuge is the first truth that we see under this idea of crying for help. Because God is our refuge, we can and we ought to cry to him for help. If God was not our refuge, then there would be no point in calling to him. If you have someone who uh, has helped you out in the past, what's true? You're more likely to come to that person again for help because there is a, a sense of proven character. And the same is true of God. God has been a refuge in the past and he continues to be so. Furthermore, God hears his people. It's not enough just that God is a refuge, but God is actively involved in responding to the cries of his people for help. We see this in verse 1. Let me not be ashamed. Verse 2. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to save me. Verse 3. You have given commandment to save me. God 
hears and answers prayers because if God was strong but ignored us, that would be no help at all. But it is the fact that God is both strong, He is our refuge, and He hears our cries that makes Him a certain hope to which we can come. And then we see this also, this truth, that God defends against the wicked, especially in verse 4. Rescue me out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. Uh, there are circumstances perhaps less for us in our situation than it was for David where it's very clear Saul was trying to kill him, the Philistines were trying to kill him, other people were angry with him and trying to kill him. There was a very clear and specific set of human physical enemies that David faced throughout his life. And whether this is a psalm of David or a psalm patterned after or, or those of David, the reality is the same. In their day, there were often specific people who were opposing them from whom they, they asked for God to deliver them. Our enemies, I think, are less defined sometimes for us. They tend not to be specific people, although sometimes there's very clear examples of people around us that are trying to do us harm. They tend to be more distant. People in positions of authority or uh, circumstances of our life are more the enemies that we tend to face. But despite those things, if God can rescue the psalmist from a specific person, from those who purpose to do evil, in an immediate sense, someone nearby, God certainly is capable of doing so to the enemies who are far away or to the circumstances of our life to deliver us in and through those as well. So we can cry for God's help against our enemies because He's been a refuge in the past, and we can call to Him confidently because of His past help. You, God, are my hope, my confidence from my youth. This was not a relationship that just started yesterday for the psalmist. This is an ongoing relationship that he's experienced from the point in which he's a young man. And God has faithfully looked after him over and over again. If this is a psalm of David, think of David's life. David was rescued from the lion and the bear as he watched the sheep. David was rescued from the hand of Goliath the Philistine. David was rescued from the Philistines, from um, uh, the Nabal who tried to kill him because he was a wicked man, from um, Saul, from a variety of other enemies later on in his life. If it was another of these saints in the Old Testament, God intervened in their lives throughout their lives to look after them and to care for them. Think about Moses, for example. Moses is rescued as a baby from being put to death. Moses is given a good life in Pharaoh's household. Moses is preserved in the wilderness. Moses is sustained in the last 40 years of his life as he leads the people through the wilderness. Think about Joseph. Joseph has these dreams as a youth, has this long stretch, decades, of where he's separated from his family and experiencing trials, could have been killed at a number of moments, and yet God preserved his life. The list goes on of people in the Bible and people in the course of the history of those who have followed God whom God has preserved from their youth as they have followed Him. God is our hope, verse 5. God has been our help all our life long. From youth, sustained from my birth, you are He who took me from my mother's womb. This doesn't necessarily mean that every person is a Christian from the point that they're born. In fact, no one is a Christian at the point of their birth. The idea that you, be, you follow God just because you're baptized in a particular church or just because you're a part of a particular family is not found in the Bible. Rather, the point that I think that we can see is much of what I uh, remember uh, at a friend whose name was Jesse, and he 
was in his late 80s, early 90s when I was getting to know him and we were serving alongside uh, visiting people in hospital and nursing homes and so forth. He shared his testimony on more than one occasion about the fact that he grew up, didn't know God as a, as a kid. As a teenager, still didn't know God. Goes over and he's in World War II, still doesn't know God. Gets saved in connection with circumstances of being over in the war. Comes back and begins to follow God. I think that this passage would hold true in his life, even though he didn't know God in the early part of his life, it was God who was sustaining him. And so I think whether you trusted God last week, or whether you trusted God when you were very young, this passage holds truths that are still true in your life, that God is the one who preserves and defends and protects you throughout the course of your life. As a result, verse 6, God deserves our praise. My praise is continually of you. And it is in connection with past deliverance. Praise God because he has been your refuge in the past. Now the psalm moves more to the present time. Praise God despite ceaseless trials and countless enemies in the present. Verses 7 and following. It says, I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and your glory, with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails, for my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. In the experience of the psalmist, trials have multiplied, verses 7 through 9. The experience of trials and the ongoing experience of God as refuge, I think, is the marvel to which he refers. It can either be a negative connotation, wow, look at that, or a positive connotation, wow, look at that. And the word itself is not necessarily clear, but in the context, it seems to be the conjunction of the trials that he's experienced and the ongoing sustaining of God through those trials that is the marvel. Something along the lines of, wow, this person has been through so many trials, and yet look at how God has sustained him through them all. That, I think, is the marvel that he refers to in verse 7. And it's connected with this idea of God as a strong refuge, for uh, the second phrase there. Even in this present difficulty, we see that God can and should be continually praised. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Despite the fact that he has experienced great trials, because God has been a refuge through them all, he continues to praise God. Now, whether the old age is imminent, some translations have now that I am old, verse 9, or or whether it's immediate, now that I am old, or imminent, in the time of old age, drawing near soon, uh, it is the time when most would expect to be abandoned. That's the accusation of the wicked in verse 11. God has forsaken him. There's no one to help him. People find us useful when we are young and strong, when we are beautiful or rich, when we have all of these advantages that they can then share. When we're old and need help, when we have lost our attractiveness in various ways relative to our youth, those are the times when according to the, um, the pattern of the world, people tend to be cast off and forgotten. And yet, God does not abandon his servants when they are old, perhaps because he did not choose them for their strength, their beauty, their power in their youth. 
So unlike the world which takes people, uses them, and then casts them aside, God doesn't pick us because of our qualities to be His servants. He often picks us in spite of our qualities, in spite of the fact that, in verse 9, when our strength fails. In those moments, God often shows Himself most strong. Think about the life of Paul and of many others in which their greatest work for God was done when they were physically and, and uh, in, their, in their soul at their weakest. Because it's not our strength that accomplished these things, it's God. Think about that passage in Jeremiah, let the one who boasts not boast in strength or might or riches or power, all those sorts of things, but boast that he understands and knows that God is the Lord. And Paul said similar things about not boasting in ourselves, but rather boasting in God. Why did God put Paul on the brink of death so that he can then write to the Corinthians and say, God spared us from death? He says, so that our hope would not be in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so God doesn't pick us because of our strength. He instead chooses us so that he can demonstrate his strength in us. And so when our strength runs out and we come to the time of old age and all of those things, God doesn't cast us aside because the relationship is not based on those qualities. It's based on His purpose and His plan for our lives. We need to also recognize that that weakness can come at any age. For Jesus, for many of the saints, their greatest trials were well before what we would consider to be old age. I mentioned Joseph a few moments ago. Joseph's trial was when he was a teenager. Daniel and his three friends, perhaps barely elementary aged when they are taken off to Babylon. Jesus himself, early 30s. Many of these saints were not 60, 70, 80, 90 when they experienced these great trials and times of weakness in which God showed himself strong. And so when we hear in the time of old age or when I am weak, don't think 50 years from now, don't think 10 years from now, think in your time of difficulty and trial even now, God does not cast us aside, even though trials have multiplied, verses 7 through 9. Even though enemies have surrounded, verses 10 and 11, they speak against and conspire, verse 10, they spoke against me, they've consulted together. It's this idea of a plot, a scheme, a plan to do harm to someone. And there's also this insinuation that the reason they think they're going to be successful in this is because you're all alone, there's no one to help, God has forgotten you. Think about the parallels between this, when they mock and create doubt in God's nearness, when they speak against and conspire. Think about the parallels to Jesus' own experience. In Acts 4.27, the early church prays and they, they ask for God's help because they say, in this moment, even as in the experience of Christ, truly in this city they were gathered against together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So when they faced this conspiracy against them, they remembered the similar opposition of various peoples to Jesus. What was the mockery that the religious leaders had against Jesus when he hung on the cross? He trusted in God, let him deliver him. 
And so we see the experience of the psalmist echoed in Jesus' own experience. You may see that experience echoed in your own life. People plotting against you or people mocking you because you trust in God. So even though trials have surrounded or multiplied and enemies have surrounded, we can praise God even in the present moment. We move now to the future in the second half of the psalm, the section that Bob read and the last few verses of the psalm. Praise God as you look to future deliverance. If the first few verses were a looking back on how God had ministered to the psalmist throughout his youth, and the middle section evaluated his immediate circumstances and his still continued need for God's help, then the end comes to praising God as you look to future deliverance. Praise God, first of all, for his righteousness shown in mighty deeds. Verses 12 through 16. Cry to God against, his, against your enemies, for only he can deliver. This is expressed in this urgency. Don't be far from me. Hasten to my help. Invoking God's punishment on the wicked. Let those who are adversaries be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. God is the one who will have victory over the enemies. God is the one who is able to enact justice on those who oppress his people. Our efforts in this way will fail. And in connection with this, we can hope and praise Him. Hope and praise Him more and more. Verse 14, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness, your salvation all day long. And the content of it is about God's mighty acts. Verse 16, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. We tend to think when we are oppressed by enemies surrounding us, and we want God's help, that all we need to do is just say, God, fix this for me. God, deliver me from this. All of these sorts of things. But we tend not to think that there's a place for praise in the midst of great trials. And the psalmist makes it clear that he is still trusting in God and that his praise for God both increases and is constant about who God is his righteousness, and his mighty acts of deliverance. Praise God for his strength that is shown when we are weak. Verses 17 through 21. This is continuing a long-standing habit of praise from youth to his end of years. Verse 17, You've taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds, and even when I am old and gray. So there is an element here of perseverance. Praising God when he's young, praising God in his middle age, praising God even as he looks toward old age, or perhaps even old age has come upon him, and looking even beyond that to the very end of his years, there is this habit of praise that continues. There's a perseverance in praise to God. And the goal is not mere deliverance for the sake of personal relief. Look at verse 18, the goal, until I declare your strength to the generation, your power to all who are to come. If God delivers us from a great trial, or if we pray for deliverance from a great trial, simply so our lives are easier, then I think we miss the point of a psalm like this, because the psalmist's goal was not just make life better and easier for me. The psalmist's goal was deliver me so that I can continue to praise your name. In some psalms, it takes the form of, if I die, I can't praise you anymore. And in some psalms, it takes the form of, as here, 
when you deliver me, I will have all the more reason to praise you and declare your name to those who are around me. There is an idea of passing on truth about God to future generations. We see this, for example, in 2 Timothy 2. Paul says to Timothy, the things you learn from me teach to faithful men who can teach others also. We don't just praise God so that we can all feel good about things. We praise God so that there is a continual awareness of God from generation to generation. God delivers us from trials so we pass on that truth about Him. God is worthy to be praised throughout our lives to serve as a pattern and example for those who come after us. Why is there this praise? Praising because God is worthy. God is exalted. Your righteousness is to the heavens. He is great. You have done great things. He is unique. Oh God, who is like you? God being exalted is a great truth that I think in our day it's easy for us to forget. We tend to think of God as uh, kind of, I think, in the 70s and maybe since then, this idea really became popular. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is my buddy. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is... And there's this putting Jesus on our level kind of idea. God is great and exalted. Now, we can make the opposite error and say God is not near. God is so exalted we can't even know Him at all. There are false... Um, perspectives of theology that really push that. God is way up here. You can't really know Him because He's just so high up and far from you. So we can go to that extreme or we can go to the extreme of Jesus and God is just like me. This psalm has the proper attitude which is God is exalted. God has done great things. God is unique. This is a contrast that is repeated throughout the Old Testament and even into the New that unlike the gods of the nations... God is the one true God. In what sense? First of all, God is the creator. He made everything. In so many religions, there is this concept that their God is sort of trapped within the framework of the, of the world itself. Would like to do certain things, but has limitations. Sometimes those limitations uh, take the form of geographical limitations. This was the common error of the Canaanites against the Israelites. If we go up into the hills, this group will win. If we go down in the valleys, this group will win. Because they had this idea of local deities. And the, the, the power of the God is basically tied to the, the border lines of the nation. But like Jonah tells the people, the uh, sailors, he admits, hey, I ran away from this one true God who made everything and who is everywhere, which means that he can follow us even to the ocean and you're not going to escape from his wrath, which really made them feel great about the whole situation. God could find Jonah when he was in the land of Israel. God could find Jonah when he's in the Mediterranean Sea trying to flee to Tarshish. Because God is everywhere. God is unique. God is not bound by geography. God is not limited because He's the God who made everything, who rules over everything. God is a God who is alive. This is another thing that's emphasized throughout the Old Testament in contrast to the gods of the nations. Dead idols. Think about the story of Dagon. Great story in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites said, well, we've been disobeying God, but we're going to take this magic box with us and then everything will be great and we'll win. And God said, you're not going to treat me that way. So he lets the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant so that the Israelites couldn't see it as this uh, talisman that's going to make them win. The Philistines don't know what to do with it, so they put it in one of their temples. 
and to show the Philistines that their gods are foolish too, just like the Israelites worshiping the Ark of the Covenant was foolish, what does God do? God makes all their idols fall over. So they come in the next morning. What do they do? They set all the idols back up. It's kind of like you have a small child come and knock over all the stuff in your house. What do you do? You put it back on the shelf. You know, you glue the things that they broke. There was a cardinal or something that was like a music box that my brother knocked off a shelf and there was always this little glue line in its beak because it had been repaired because little kids knock things off shelves. That's kind of the, what happened with the Philistines with their idols. Oh, it fell down, all right. Fill in a little bit of mortar, fix the cracks, put it back up on the shelf. They come in the next day, what's happened? It's all broken in pieces. They're like, all right, we gotta get rid of this thing because this is not good, it's making our gods look bad. The prophets continually mock the sort of foolishness that says, hey, let's cut down a tree. Let's burn half of it so we can cook our bread and meat, and then let's carve the other half of it so it can be an idol. And we recognize that the idol in and of itself is not the ultimate thing. They were worshiping demons, false gods that stood behind the idol. But the whole act of idolatry is foolish. Why would you worship any created thing or any representation of any created thing where you could worship the God who is the creator? God is unique. His righteousness is exalted. His power is infinite. His status is unparalleled among any conception of God or gods throughout the whole earth. Praising God's strength in contrast to our own weakness. Verse 20, You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again, bring me up from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. There's a recognition that God has sovereignly brought the troubles. There are false concepts of God that say bad stuff happens to good people because God would like to help you out, but his hands are tied because he's really not in charge either because we are so great and we can sort of say, no, nah, God, not today, or because um, God is sort of wrapped up in his creation, this false, limited idea of God that's a pagan idea. Whatever the reason, there are ideas of God that say, God would like to help you out, but he can't. But the biblical perspective is that nothing happens in your life except as is ordained by the sovereign purpose of God. That becomes complex when we think about things like prayer. If we pray, but God has already purposed what's going to happen, then why do we pray? And as we talked about on another Wednesday night, I think, or something like that, uh, there's parallels perhaps to when your kids ask you for something, and they always ask you for that thing, like maybe they get home from school and they get the snack, and so they ask you for the snack, but you're already making the snack. You know what they're going to need before they ask it, and their asking doesn't change what you're going to do, but it is still a genuine response to what they said. God's sovereignty doesn't exclude prayer. God's sovereignty doesn't exclude responsibility. If you sin, even though God's sovereign, you can't say, hey God, you made me do it, because you knew I was going to do it, you didn't stop me. And yet God's sovereignty, we have to recognize, is the ultimate reason that anything happens in our lives. Every good and perfect gift is from above. You, O Lord, create disaster and chaos. Both things are equally true. And so we can either act as though things that come into our lives are accidents, or we can acknowledge that they come from the hand of God. 
And so the psalmist here says, you who have shown me many troubles and distresses. And the the link between those things is this. If God is the one who brought the troubles and distresses, then crying to God for help is the way for relief from those troubles and distresses. You will revive me again. You will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness. There are two paths by which this takes place. One is by restoration. The story of Job is that... All of the things are restored to him, his children, his health, and so forth. He is riches. God delivers and restores to him various things. Um, God helps Daniel's three friends who are in the fiery furnace, spares them from burning up, and, and restores them. The other path by which God delivers, as verse 20 and 21 talks about, is through resurrection. We see this, for example, in Hebrews 11. We see this in the example of Jesus. We see this in the expectation of the apostles in the New Testament. Not that God would ultimately deliver them from the trial, but through the trial would bring them to God's presence and they would experience the glory of the resurrection in his presence forever. And so whichever path or course God sets us on, the reality is that we still call to God because he's the one who brings us through our troubles. God's greatness can increase our greatness, verse 21, and turn to comfort me, I think parallels that idea in 2 Corinthians 1. God is the God of comfort because he is the one who is strong. He's the one who sustains us in our time of weakness. And so just like God is the one who brought the troubles and God is the one who restores, God is the one who gives strength gives strength because he is strong. Finally, we see that we ought to praise God for his truth against the lies of the enemies. So praise God for his righteousness shown in mighty deeds. Praise God for his strength when we are weak. Praise God for his truth against the lies of the enemies. Verse 22 through 24, I will praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue will utter your righteousness all day long, for they are shamed, they are humiliated who seek my hurt. We are to praise God with instruments and voice. Verse 22, the God of truth, the holy one of Israel. He, the psalmist praises with a harp. The psalmist praises with his voice. He praises God's truth. He praises the fact that God is the Holy One of Israel, this unique relationship that he had with his people. We are to praise God exuberantly for salvation. My soul which you have redeemed. Now, the word redeemed sometimes has just the sort of the sense of rescue, but I think the further we go through Scripture, the more the word redeemed has connotations not just of temporal salvation but of eternal salvation that we are redeemed and that we are uh, as uh, was mentioned in Sunday school hour we're bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body and soul which are his and so we do praise God for his salvation whether that be temporary and in temporal deliverance from physical trouble but most importantly the salvation that he gives to those who trust in Jesus alone And then praise for God's triumph against the lies of the enemies. What did they say? God's far away. Verse 11. God has forsaken him. What's the reality? God is not far. God has not forsaken. God is a refuge. 
God will punish the wicked. They are ashamed. They are humiliated who seek my hurt. Verse 1, let me never be ashamed. Verse 11, God has forsaken him. Verse 24, they are ashamed. They are humiliated who seek my hurt. So we see this trajectory of, may I not be ashamed? It looks like he's going to be ashamed, but God delivers him and the enemies are the ones who are ashamed. As I read this psalm, I have thought about the past few months for our own family and particularly the, the, the tenor or the tone for our praise service today. Let me start with the second. With regard to a praise service, we tend to think a praise service is everything, all the things are sorted out, all the bad stuff is fixed, everything is great, and so now there's this great and amazing thing that we can say, it's done, here's how God has helped me. But the reality is, like we were talking about in the Sunday school hour, the events of our lives aren't neatly wrapped up in 40-minute episodes. You may come to a praise service and you say, I don't feel like praising God because I'm still in a great difficulty. You may say, I'm not sure about praising God because it seems like there's this other thing right around the corner. And so I think as we look at a psalm like this, the point is not that we praise God only when trials are all done and everything is good from a human perspective but that especially we need to praise God even as the trials are ongoing. Here's a saint who is growing older in Psalm 71. We might have thought, well, you know, you've served God this long. At some point, life gets really easy. So you can praise God because you look back on all those things because they were a long time ago. But here's a psalmist, a saint, follower of God who's praising God in the midst of ongoing trials and difficulties, which I think is much harder for us to do. So, going to what I was going to say with regard to our own family. I've said this before, and I'm sure some of you have probably thought this as well. I know Kelly and I have discussed it. After Maggie's cancer and her treatment and her recovery that she's had, I didn't expect for Kelly to go through what she's going through. And once we started Kelly's treatment, I didn't expect her to have to go to the hospital, especially so quickly. I knew there was always a possibility, but I didn't think it was going to be after three or four weeks. And once she was in the hospital, I was sure, well, she's going to be out, you know, in a couple of weeks. Well, she'll be out by the end of October. Uh, well, she'll be out by Thanksgiving for sure. She's not home yet. I think we're getting close, and I hope that just another week or so, and she'll be home, and I'm looking forward and expecting that. And yet... At the moment, she's still there. Now, at least some of her delays getting home are due to human error or the slowness with which large organizations act or all of those sorts of things. But if I am to see the situation as the psalmist saw his situation, I have to acknowledge the ultimate reason that Kelly's still in the hospital and I'm here and the trial is not passed but is ongoing is for similar reasons to what the psalmist said here, which is that God brings the trials into our lives and then he takes them away from us in his timetable, not according to ours. And so I can, as I was very frustrated on Friday, and I don't think it was wrong for me to express the frustration and the need for things to move along with Kelly getting to PT and getting home. And at the same time, I had to wrestle with the fact that there is absolutely nothing that I can do, nothing at all. I can't make the insurance company answer phone calls on a Friday the day after Thanksgiving. I can't make the hospital move her upstairs until they get approval for that. I can't 
make the PT people come in over the weekend. Now, one of them did show up yesterday, and I'm glad of that, but I didn't really expect anybody to come. But there's all these things that I can do nothing about. So the question I have to ask myself is, am I going to call to God for his help, and am I going to praise God in the midst of these things, or am I just going to say, I'm frustrated, I'm done, I don't want to do this anymore? And the same question is what you have to ask yourself as well. Maybe you have some condition or situation that's not immediately life-threatening, but it is debilitating. Maybe due to sinful choices, or maybe because you made the right choices, your life is not as you expected it to be. Maybe you are tired of following God as you grow older when your life is not better in the ways that we think it should be better at a certain point. If our present suffering is due to our sin, we need to repent. If we examine ourselves and we've dealt with sin and we find no other explanation other than God's sovereign purpose for our lives, we must, as the psalmist did, cry out to God, praise Him in the midst of the storm, and look to His future deliverance. Praise God who delivers His aging followers and shames their enemies. And so I want to close with the words of a song that I thought about at the beginning of Kelly's diagnosis and I thought about even in connection with this passage as well. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in and saved the day, and once again I say amen. It's still raining, but as the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain, I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm, and I will lift my hands, for you are who you are no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side, and though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. Now there's other more eloquent poetry, perhaps, that could be used to express the truths of this psalm. But that's, I think, the point that the psalmist is getting at. Do we praise God not only when the storm has passed, but also in the midst of the storm? And so as we go to our time for lunch, I'm not trying to... It probably feels like I am harping on things that sound discouraging in the past few weeks. And I want you to know that for those of you for whom life looks like it's full of potential and most likely is, I'm not saying that every moment of your life will be miserable or difficult. And yet, like I told the lady when we were talking about what sorts of churches and what sorts of preachers to listen to and all those sorts of things, if I don't say these things to you in the midst of our experience of them at this moment, I am not equipping you for when you experience them down the road. Or when you are experiencing them right now. Maybe I don't know about you going through the same sort of thing right now. And so if we think that praise is just all the bad is done, now we have this, this happy-go-lucky, uh, really, really excited praise service, that is one sort of possibility. You have come through some great trial, and now you look back on it. But you can also praise God even in the middle of the trial that God has brought into your life. And I think that we see that in this psalm, and I hope that we will praise God in the storm, young or old, whatever it may be, because He has not changed, and He is with us if we trust in Him. Let's pray.
Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at the truths of this psalm together. I ask, Lord, that you'd help us to meditate on these truths, to enjoy the many blessings that you bring into our lives as they come day by day, to look forward with anticipation for what you will do in our lives to come in future days. But in those moments, Lord, when you have brought great difficulty into our lives, help us to see that even then, and even especially then, we ought to praise you because you are still our God in those times. You still can deliver us. You ultimately will deliver us, whether it be from the trial or in your presence forever. And we pray that we would trust you in this way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.